this time I invite you to find your Bible and turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 this morning. Uh, thank you again, music team, and again, welcome to our visitors. I'm happy you're here. I begin by reading James 4, verses 11 to 12. James 4, 11 to 12. The Word of God reads, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. And if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? The message today is entitled, The Truth About Slander. The Truth About Slander. A very much needed message today. Cemented into the Roman Catholic system is a revised list of seven deadly sins. Have you ever heard of the seven deadly sins? Around 600 A.D., by the authority of Pope Gregory I, these transgressions were thought of as being the worst kind of offenses. They are pride, greed, lust, wrath, gluttony, envy, and who remembers the other one? Sloth. That's right. Although the Bible does indeed validate all of these things as sins, it nowhere recorded a list identical to the one the Pope approved of. And nowhere in the Bible are these sins specifically referred to as the only seven deadly sins. The gospel truth is that all sin brings death, no matter how big or small we think it may be, according to our human idea of justice. Moreover, nowhere in the Bible do we find an assortment of seven carefully selected sins that are intended to be elevated above other sins. It's true that some sinners will undergo greater condemnation. You know that because of James 3.1. But all sin is deserving of eternal punishment, is it not? One more correction to Rome's arrangement of seven chief sins. It lacks many other sins. They're equally serious. Such as the sin of idolatry, the sin of thievery, the sin of anxiousness and bitterness. What about the abundant sins of omission? Like not going to church. Or not dressing modestly. Or sins like employees not being obedient to their employer. Wives not being obedient and respectful to their husband. And children not being obedient to their parents. What about the sheer evil of husbands failing to honor, provide for, and protect their wife? Have you ever read 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 that says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Perhaps most absurdly, another sin that Rome failed to include in her list of sins is slander. The sin of slander. 
Slander is a core, integral part of our culture, isn't it? It's tightly woven into the fabric of our society. Just watch the presidential debates. It's so common that even as believers, we can become numb to it and immune to it. And then what happens when we as professing professing Christians begin to become numb to it? We begin to join in. Perhaps the most common place where professing believers have the tendency to join in on public slander, people we don't like, is on social media, which has single-handedly revolutionized our postmodern culture by providing a 24-7 instant platform for every Tom, Dick, and Harry to slander whomever they want with no accountability and no threat whatsoever. So it's easy to join in on it because we have the instant platform for it, and it's natural for us to want to tear people down and make ourselves feel good. It's also normal and esteemed in the world, so we're surrounded by it. Bad company corrupts what? Good morals. So realizing the ease and the tendency for men to slander, we all need to be reminded about how to think accurately about slander. James tackles this very subject clearly in James 4, verses 11 and 12. Up to this point in this letter, and again, if you're visiting, uh, it's our custom to preach expositionally, which means verse by verse through a book of the Bible. So far, we've discovered discovered that James is writing to the diaspora, the Jews scattered among Palestine due to persecution in the first century. They had some issues that needed to be dealt with, so James writes to them. They needed to be instructed on how to handle suffering and temptation, chapter 1. They need to be reminded, or corrected rather, on the proper use of the tongue. They needed a stern rebuke about showing personal favoritism, chapter 2. They needed instruction on relationship between works and faith. And the difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And in the last few weeks, in the series I just finished, we learned that they needed to be called to radical repentance. And now at this point in James's letter... They needed to be confronted about the human tendency to slander others, even their own brothers and sisters in Christ. The way that verses 11 and 12 are written in the original text doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. These verses can be read at face value and be applied to us here today the exact way it did 2,000 years ago. Because we know that everyone has the ability to slander. That means that slander is something that we need to look out for, don't we? Even in this very church. So as we read and take in these verses this morning, I want to call your attention to three defining truths about slandering. That will serve as a convicting reminder about the need to refrain from it. Three Defining truths with regard to slandering that will serve as a convicting reminder about the need to refrain from it. So let's dive in here. The first defining truth with regard to slandering is in the beginning of verse 11. 
we see clearly that slandering is strictly prohibited. Look at verse 11. James says, do not speak against one another, brethren. Now, the list is a literal translation of kata laleo. Kata is the Greek preposition meaning against, and laleo is the Greek verb meaning to speak clearly. So to speak against. The NAS has it right with the most literal rendering. Other translations, maybe you have one that says slander or criticize. And it's always funny sometimes to check what the message says because it's so paraphrased. It says, don't badmouth each other, friends. Don't badmouth each other. Well, that's a pretty loose paraphrase, but it does help in, a, in some way. The word means any kind of harmful speech. Speech like questioning legitimate authority, as when the people of Israel spoke against God and Moses, Numbers, Numbers 21.5. It also denotes slandering someone in secret, Psalm 101.5. It also denotes bringing incorrect accusation, 1 Peter 2.12 and 3.16. In this passage, James is warning his readers never to indulge in such slanderous speech. However, to be perfectly clear, to speak against does not mean we are to refrain from confronting those in sin. This is commanded in Scripture. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17 says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to them, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. In other words, let him be as an outsider. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness. Titus 1, verses 10 to 13. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith. And, of course, Titus 3.10 applies especially to elders. Paul commanded Timothy to reject a factious man. Reject the factious man. Put him out of your midst. So you must be extremely cautious. Listen, extremely cautious. That you do not take one verse out of context and create a theology. One of the saddest and most harmful and erroneous theologies of 21st century American Christianity is the ubiquitous thought that we should never judge. That's false. It's foolish and derelict. 
And obviously, as I've just shown you, it's unbiblical. So James is not condemning employing righteous judgment. He's condemning careless, derogatory, critical, slanderous accusations against each other. That's the sin. It's wrong to slander, especially your fellow Christians. Slander is so horrendous and so vile and so wicked. In fact, it was the sin of slander that preceded Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden, perpetrated by Satan, which fittingly means what? Slander. In Genesis 3.1, Satan slandered God's integrity by saying, has God said, questioning what God said. Then in verse 5, he slandered God's motives when he said, when you eat, you will become like God, implying that God is somehow withholding something good from mankind. And what followed after those slanderous remarks about God himself was the death of the whole entire human race. So it's easy to see that slander is a very serious sin. God hates it, and he will judge every slanderer. Gossip was not only a problem, evidently, in James's audience, but it was almost—it was an issue almost everywhere in the early church. Ephesians 4.31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. The Colossians were slanderers. Paul said to put them aside, anger, wrath, malice, and slander from your mouth. Even Peter's audience. 1 Peter 2, verses 1 to 3, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, put that aside. Take it off. And like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up in respect to your salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Not only was slander a widespread problem in the early church, I think it goes without saying that it continues to be a fatal disease today. Church splits happen due to gossip and slander. Relationships are impacted by gossip and slander. Godly influence in the community is lost due to gossip and slander. And sadly, marriages are sabotaged by gossip and slander. Pastors are caught in the crossfire of gossip and slander and are often the blunt, the brunt, excuse me, of plenty of it. So here's the main point in verse 11a summarized. God views gossip and slander as a heinous sin. He always has. He always will. And he will hold us accountable to every single slanderous word ever spoken. The second defining truth with regard to slandering, in the second sentence of verse 11, reveals the reason that slander is prohibited. Slander is extremely negligent. The first truth with regard to slander is that slandering is 
strictly prohibited. Secondly, slandering is extremely negligent. Where there is negligence, there is a disregard for something, and there is a failure to meet a responsibility. So when we slander, we are negligent in two ways, two distinct ways. First, we disregard the authority of God's word. Look at verse 11 again. It says, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. Now, we have to keep in mind the Jewishness of this letter. The law James has in mind here is the Old Testament law given to the nation of Israel who was bound to the Old Covenant. Now, more precisely, what's in view here is an allusion to Leviticus 19.16, which says, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Who is your people? God's covenant people, the Jews. So this prohibition against slander is nothing new, right? It's a clear command. And the diaspora would have known it. And although they are no longer constrained by the ceremonial and civil law of the Mosaic Covenant, the moral law hasn't changed. God still does not authorize slander. And so James assumes that slander against a fellow believer contradicts the clear teaching that we are to love our neighbors. And therefore we become spiritually negligent by committing the sin of slander when we fail to keep our responsibility to obey the law, to love and not slander. But not only that, James says something interesting next. Look at the text. When we slander, we also stand in judgment over the law. In failing to keep the law, James says, we also judge it. Isn't that interesting? How do we, sinful men and women, judge the law? Well, judge here in this context, again, here's, you've got to put on your interpretive hat now, okay? Judge here in this context the way it's used all six times in verses 11 to 12, by the way, refers to condemnation, not evaluation. Very important distinction. In this context, the word judge, used all six times in verses 11 and 12, intends to communicate the idea of condemnation, not evaluation. Okay? We are to evaluate things. We are to evaluate God's word. What does it say? What does it mean? We are to evaluate each other, and I'll get to that more later. But it's not our business to condemn sinners. And it's certainly not our place, certainly not our place, to stand a judgment over God's word. But it happens all the time, does it not? It happens everywhere, in some way, in some degree. Because that's what happens when you slander. We all agree here at SVBC that we have no business judging God's law because we have a high view of God's word here. But when we slander, we condemn God's word, thus showing utter disregard for his divine authority. Naturally, what follows the disregard of God's word is the denial of our responsibility to obey God's word. Look at verse 11 again. 
It says, but if you judge or condemn the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Now, based on the prior expositions, we know that God wills for us to be doers, right? Do not be hearers only, but doers. James 1.22, prove yourselves to be doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. So when slanderers slander their brother, they are not doers of righteousness, but rather they, in effect, claim to be superior to the law of God. Now just think about that for a second. This is why we have to have a very biblical view of sin. Because we tend to kind of brush it aside and minimize it. We do that by trampling the blood of Christ, by expecting forgiveness. We do that by comparing ourselves to others. Oh, I'm not so bad compared to that person. We undermine and downplay sin because we have a false view of justification and sanctification. But when you slander, what you are really doing is that you are elevating yourself above God himself. Slander carries with it the startling implication that declares this statement. I am above God's word because it is unworthy of my attention, affection, and obedience. Now, is that not the epitome of spiritual negligence? We know that we are to love our neighbor. We know that we are not to slander. But when we do, and we do, we have, we elevate ourselves above God's law, and in doing so, we condemn it. We set it aside. Spiritual negligence to the nth degree. The third defining truth with regard to slandering is in verse 12. First, slandering is strictly forbidden or prohibited. Prohibited. Secondly, slandering is extremely negligent. And thirdly, slandering is utterly arrogant. Look at verse 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge. One lawgiver and judge. These two titles that James attributes to God the Father stresses that he alone is the supreme sovereign ruler of the universe. And the word lawgiver here, only used once in the New Testament, refers to the one who put the law into place, and judge refers to the one who puts law into practice. God is both. He gives the law, and he applies the law. To put it in the modern American vernacular, God the Father, in actuality, at all times, is the judicial, legislative, and executive branch simultaneously. God gave the law, and he will use it to judge men. Listen to this. He will use it to judge men eternally and eschatologically. Again, context informs this interpretation. James goes on and says, the one who is able to save, 
and destroy. Now, I know you are very familiar with God's role as Savior. So I won't belabor that truth too much for the sake of time this morning. Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost, right? If you confess your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised from the dead, you will be saved. This church here, we understand salvation. We understand Christ's role as Savior. But today, with using God's word, I think that I might be able to bring a little bit of balance to your theology this morning. God is not just a Savior. The Bible says he's also a destroyer. Look at it. The one who was able to save and destroy. I don't want you to think I'm making this up, so make sure you see it yourself. Many do not like to think of God as both being a Savior and a destroyer, but he is. And let me explain this very clearly because, again, we need to have a biblical, balanced theology here. The word destroy you see in the English Bible is a forceful word in the Greek. This is so because it has a prefixed preposition on the front of the main verb, which intensifies its meaning. So it would be highly appropriate to understand this as destroy wholly or perish completely. Now, in what sense does complete destruction of men, in what sense does James intend to communicate here? Figuratively? Physically? Well, in the context, again, we need to understand that James has in mind here a final judicial sense of destroying. He's referring to the final judgment when God will sentence all unrepentant, unbelieving sinners to hell for eternity. Remember the words of Christ himself in Matthew 10.28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who was able to destroy both soul and body in where? And where? You can say it. It's not a dirty word. In hell. It's a reality. And so in keeping with this teaching of the Lord Jesus, James is revealing that God is in the business of saving. Amen. But he's also in the business of sentencing criminals. In a very similar way that Jesus was judged by men in Matthew 27. It says that the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. It's the same word. Destroy. So understand this. When God incarnate was here, he allowed sinful men to judge him unjustly. But in the end, during the final judgment, the second death, Sinful men who have refused to repent will believe, who, excuse me, sinful men who have refused to repent and believe the gospel will be judged justly. God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, and he will uphold his law and hold every criminal accountable to it. Now, to bring it home a little bit, 
May I remind you something this morning? Who are the criminals? Who are the criminals? Everybody. Everybody should raise their hand. We're all criminals, right? We've all sinned. All have sinned and fallen short, right? We are all guilty. We we can be charged with treason, with crime, with basically every, every single one of us could have the whole book thrown at us, right? But we who have believed have been pardoned and acquitted and forgiven. Because God is a judge, but he's also a merciful judge. So if God is the true and only judge, then it begs the question in verse 12. Since there is only one judge, one lawgiver, who was able to save and destroy, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now again, don't walk away from today's message thinking that you are not to judge people. That's not what James is saying here. That's not the main point in the slightest. We are to judge. But we are to use sound biblical judgment, not hypocritical judgment. And we as men and women do not condemn men to hell. We deliver the message that God will do that. God will pour out his wrath and it's not judgmental to communicate that truth. Listen, it is not judgmental to communicate the truth of the gospel. You must understand that. You need to meditate and read verses like this. 1 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. It says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And then verse 8. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Listen to me, my Baptist friends. The gospel is not an invitation. So stop calling it that. The gospel is a command. It's a command to believe and repent. Sinners will go to hell because they refuse to believe and repent. Verse 9, these, referring to those who do not obey the gospel, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, what I just read, we are supposed to warn people of that. It's not judgmental or wrong. To gently remind people of the wrath to come. Not only are we here to evangelize, we are here to, we're actually we're commanded to excommunicate unrepentant sinners from the fellowship. Does that not require sound judgment? Just read 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. We're also uh, responsible to appoint qualified elders. 
which requires plenty of sound judgment, does it not? Is the candidate, is the elder candidate able to teach? Is he a one-woman man? Is he a good manager of his household? Does he have godly character? What are his motives? Those are all questions that you need to ask and then make a judgment based on what you see, right? Elders are required to refute those who contradict, which involves biblical judgment, wouldn't you say? That's false doctrine. This is truth. That's a judgment. How many of your parents? Some parents in the house? You are commanded to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Doesn't that require plenty of judgment? I'm constantly judging my kids, aren't you? We are commanded to abhor what is evil. Abhor what is evil, hate it, and cling to what is good. Now, does that necessitate sound judgment? You have to judge whether or not that's evil, that's good. So you see, I'm just trying to build the case that there is a type of judgment that you are commanded to employ. So if we use our biblically informed conscience to judge good and evil, judge our leaders, judge sinners, judge our children, then what is James talking about here? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, here's what he means. He's talking about the utterly insane idea it is for men to self-appoint themselves in the role of determining the ultimate spiritual destiny of individuals. That's the kind of judgment that's left up to God. You judge rightly when you warn a sinner. God says in his word that you must turn from your sin and believe. You judge wrongly if you say, I condemn you for eternity. See the difference? Pretty clear, isn't it? And so the rhetorical question that James asks in verse 12 is written for people like that. The people that say, I am the one condemning you, I condemn you. No, we say, based on what the word of God says and based on what I see in your life, God's word says he will condemn you. So when we slander, we elevate ourselves to God's role as eternal judge. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever thought of slander in this way? I really didn't before I studied this text. Slander is a very real, serious sin. And the three truths that you just learned about it should serve as a convicted reminder about the necessity to refrain from it. It's strictly prohibited. And therefore, it's extremely negligent. Because when you slander, you condemn the law of God. You disregard the, its authority. And thereby, you deny your responsibility to be a doer. It's also arrogant. Utterly arrogant. Because when you slander, you wrongly put yourself in the role of eternal judge. So if there's a sin we should hate, 
This one should have been on that list. We should turn our back on it every time we hear it. Be bold enough to walk away. Be bold enough to say, stop talking. Be righteous enough to say, you need to go to that person. Like many things that are regarded as sin in Scripture, slander is one of the many things that Christians don't take seriously enough. But for us here today, we've been confronted with this text and we know how serious it is. So, you must apply what you just heard. And you, if you apply these things, I know that we can create a culture in this church completely free from gossip from here on out. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given us direction. You have given us light. You have given us a guidebook to help us live righteously, to help us live in unity, to help us live in a way that would please you. Father, we have all slandered. We have all uttered distasteful words. And though we might not speak as much as we used to, we still think evil thoughts. And so by your grace, may you renew our minds this morning. May we be conformed to the image of your Son. May we repent from all slander for your glory.